Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You founded the company at 17. I mean, legally, my dad did because I couldn't sign the paper. What, what did he think when you said, hey, dad, I need you to sign this paper so I can start my company? You know, th this is the beauty of immigrant families that a lot of people don't understand is immigrant families are very much driven by their children. Those parents depend on what their kids tell them needs to happen. And so when an immigrant child tells their dad, hey, I need to go to City Hall to get a business license, an immigrant dad will say, okay, when do we go? <laughs> and they, you know, they're trusting them to guide them through uh, American, you know, norms and processes. This is just what 17-year-olds do. They, they start their first companies in America. Okay, so maybe that's not what most American teenagers do, but that's what Jeffrey Jordan did when he launched Rescue Agency, a creative marketing service that helps government agencies and nonprofits develop campaigns promoting healthier choices and health behavior change. And the thing is, they're really good at it. I'm Adam Davidson, and this is The Passion Economy, a show in which we talk to people who have figured out how to thrive in a challenging economy. Today on the show, how Jeffrey Jordan figured out how to change people's behavior and help them make healthier choices, which for those of us who made New Year's resolutions to eat healthier and exercise and drink less, I think we can agree this is a big deal. So let's go back to his childhood, since this is more or less where the business began. Yeah, so I, I was born in Lima, Peru. Uh, my family's Peruvian. Your name does not sound Peruvian. Jordan, uh, I guess in Spanish, is just Jordan, um, with, a, with an accent over the A. Gives it a little spice there. Um, and uh, they named me Jeff um, because they actually were planning to move to the States eventually and wanted to give me a name that would help me fit in in the U.S. <laughs> Got you. Where did you come to? First went to Miami when I was three years old and stayed there for uh, until I was about 10. And then we moved to Las Vegas where I had my middle school and high school years. And what did your folks do? So when they first came over, my dad really was looking for whatever work he could do. Most of my early childhood, he worked in construction, and he drove a construction truck. And then when we moved to Las Vegas, he worked in hospitality. So he started in housekeeping and moved into room service. Today, he continues in room service at the Bellagio, and, um, but on the side also uh, does real estate. Oh, wow. So a lower middle class American dream, it sounds like. Very much so, yes. And tell me about you as a kid. Yeah, so I was always pretty entrepreneurial as a young person because my family was pretty poor, uh, particularly when I was younger. If there was anything that I wanted, and I had to figure out a way to pay for it. And so I began with, you know, car washes and mowing lawns and selling things out of catalogs to folks. And then when I was finally old enough to get a job when I was 14, I started various part-time work in Las Vegas to make money as well. Do you remember anything you wanted that you were able to afford? You know, uh, early on, it was comic books and action figures that I wanted and baseball cards that I couldn't, uh, that my parents 
didn't even understand why I would want to waste my money on that, much less want to uh, waste their money on it. And then as I got older, it was more about it saving up to get a car when I turned 16. Jeffrey was business-minded from the get-go, but in high school, he found the perfect club to channel his entrepreneurial skills. When I was a freshman in high school, I joined Future Business Leaders of America, uh, my local chapter, and was really, you know, I, I'd always seen myself as my, my dreams kind of honed in over time. So at first it was that I wanted to be a successful businessman, whatever that meant. And this club was all about learning how to be a business leader. And so it really felt right up my alley. And it really just opened my eyes to, to this whole different world of opportunities with the organization. And, and from that point on, I was, I was hooked and, and wanted to continue to grow and, um, and eventually was able to be national president when I was a senior. Wow. I don't actually know what it is. I've heard of it. But what is Future Business Leaders of America? Yeah, well, you know, you're asking a former national president, so I better be able to give you a good explanation here. So you do know what it is? <laughs> right. <laughs> This is one of a number of uh, career and technical student organizations where their goal is to uh, essentially be like a super extracurricular club where you're able to go to workshops and compete in different um, business-related activities. Like there's everything from accounting to um, interviewing skills to community service, all, all these different topics that you can compete in. Got you. And it sounds like you really did learn a lot, like a teenage MBA. Yeah. It, you know, it's it, these kind of extracurricular clubs are really all about what you make of them. And so for me, I became the vice president of my chapter when I was a sophomore and then president of my state when I was a junior and then national president when I was a, a senior. Each time it was really up to you. You know, you now have this title. You could go in the community and use your title to do things. And so my goal was always around increasing funds for the chapter. And I was pretty shameless and in, in, in not knowing, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I would actually go to some of these conventions and just find out where a president of a, of a Fortune 500 company was speaking and just talk, start talking to them and tell them about the club and, and ask them to, to help. And that eventually led to when I was the national president, I was able to get donations from Panasonic and from Sprint mainly because I would just kind of sneak into these conferences and and start talking to these folks. Wow. It's funny. I, I, we've had a bunch of people on this podcast who've they used some special thing about themselves that allowed them an entree. And there's so many, like being a teenager is like a, a self-possessed, ambitious teenager is a good thing. Then also having this association with future business leaders, you're taking advantage of that. But there's so many other ways, you know, you... Uh, you use a religious community or you, you you use some shared interest that you have with people. I mean, it's we probably all have access to stories we can tell about ourselves that allow us entree to people. But what you have, it seems to me, from what you're saying, is an incredibly uh, gregarious, kind of fearless approach to interacting with folks. Where does that come from? I think back then it came from ignorance of not knowing, kind of like a, well, why not? I needed to understand a reason why not to do it if, if I wasn't going to do it. And so because I didn't have a reason, it allowed me to just go ahead and put myself out there. Jeffrey was in this club. He's a kid, and he's asking CEOs of huge companies for money so that he and his classmates can go to business competitions and conferences. He knew what he wanted. He wanted to be a businessman. 
But what is a businessman? What was he going to do exactly? He wasn't sure. But then something happened. He's still in high school, still in Future Business Leaders of America. And where does this kid find the time? He starts volunteering for his local health district. They wanted to launch a youth tobacco prevention campaign. This was, you know, the year 2000. The big lawsuit had just happened against the tobacco industry. And there was a big movement around the country to empower young people to be a part of the fight against tobacco. And so the health districts around the country were encouraged to create their own youth groups. And so I volunteered really just because my best friend was going and she told me she didn't want to go alone. So I went with her. And what it sparked in that moment was I realized that this club actually wanted to create a big marketing campaign. And by that point, I had learned that I wanted to be involved in marketing and that was a passion of mine. And so I began just volunteering and coming to these meetings. Why was that a passion? You know, I think it originates from culture and the power that marketing has within culture. And so I think I was always fascinated by, you know, why are things cool and why does something become a trend and something not become a trend and how can companies actually instigate those trends? And so for me, it was all about branding and culture. And it is a skill that you learn being gay, uh, growing up gay. That is the first skill that you learn is how to manipulate the image that you present to people. You know, when you're closeted and you're 12, 13, 14 years old, you're focused on, okay, I need to fulfill the image of being macho, of being manly, of being straight. And so you say things and you do things that you're expected to do by your peers. And if you're able to, you know, that causes a lot of psychological challenges, but if you're able to overcome those and almost look at it as kind of theater and say, okay, that's fine. I'm going to, I'm going to do these things. You start to see the world a little bit more for what it is than what the average teenager sees, because you're able to see, well, why is it that that group hangs out with each other and why don't they hang out with this group? And what does it mean to be a part of that group versus be a part of this other group? And so during high school, you know, I was fascinated by the different groups that existed and fascinated by understanding what made them different and seeing this organization wanting to undo the coolness of something, right? So take away smoking, which is a symbol of cool for many young people. That was really, really interesting to me of, you know, is that possible? Could we create a new trend that kind of counteracts this already long established trend? So what was the campaign? So eventually the Expose campaign started is what it was called. And it is a youth anti-tobacco campaign in Las Vegas. It's for Southern Nevada. And it's evolved over the years, but its focus has been on really connecting with higher risk youth and with their culture. So at first it was really focused on hip hop culture and hip hop music. Eventually it transformed into more of an alternative rock. But the goal has always been to find influencers within those communities who don't use tobacco and amplify their voices, get them to talk about why they don't use tobacco, provide them with education, provide them with some of the many things that the tobacco industry does that don't align with the values of their culture to get them to stand up. So for example, alternative kids, while they're some of the ones that are most likely to smoke, they're also some of the ones that are most likely to support animal rights and be against animal testing. And so we can kind of use messaging around how the tobacco industry tests its products on animals to convince them that you know, smoking cigarettes doesn't actually align with the values that they have uh, for other behaviors. Cool. And it worked. And yeah, it works really well. Nevada has, you know, continuously beat the national average in terms of youth smoking rates with their declines. 
So you're actually a company by this point. Right. So I volunteer sophomore year. And then uh, about a year and a half later, when I was 17, is when Rescue was officially started. So, And what did it mean to have a company? I mean, was that just you in your bedroom and a laptop? Yeah. The main reason I started it was because I had convinced the health department to provide a sponsorship for this event that I was planning that was going to educate young people within kind of the the late night party scene that was going on at the time, the the rave scene that, that was happening. And unfortunately, the rave scene got kind of shut down. When I finally realized it was just no longer feasible to put this event together, I went back to them and I said, okay, well, what can we do with these funds? Because I, I you know, can I just write you a check and give them back to you? And, and they said, no, it's pretty complicated to do that. Um, it would be better if we just did something else with the money. And so at that time, we realized, you know, the campaign didn't have a website yet. It didn't have a lot of materials. And I was, I could do some of it, but I couldn't do a lot of it. I needed some of my friends to help. So the company was really started so that I could, you know, contract with some of my friends to build the website and make flyers and do all those things. Jeffrey Jordan is 17, and he's in charge of this company. How does a 17-year-old learn how to run a marketing agency? That's coming up after the break. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Jeff was 17 and the founder of Rescue Agency, a marketing agency dedicated to improving health outcomes for at-risk audiences, one of the most innovative and effective firms doing this kind of work in the country. But let's not forget, it had very humble beginnings. High school was pretty small. Uh, No, it, it was just nice money for a teenager to have. But right before I graduated, we were able to convince the health department they had been hiring an actual, you know, professional marketing agency to do this this annual summit that they were doing with youth. And fortunately, I had an amazing, you know, leader there at the health district, the, the, the woman who worked there, her name was Maria. And so when I started talking to her and told her, hey, you know, this summit that we're doing, it's full of teenagers who don't smoke. What do we expect them to do? Like, we know they don't hang out with the smokers. These are the goody-goody kids. You know, it's great that they want to be here, but they're not really going to do much. She immediately understood what I was saying and agreed. And so I was able to work with her to essentially fire this company and entrust me and my 
you know, ragtag team of friends <laughs> to put together the event the next fall where we were putting together educational training and also we did kind of like a, a party musical event to attract more of high-risk youth to show up, focus on educating them on the tobacco industry and their manipulation and things like that. And that that was really our first, you know, sizable contract. 75 grand is, I believe. Is that uh, right? Yeah. That's a lot of yeah. money for a freshman in college. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it it all got spent. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't make much? <laughs> right. I didn't do a great job of, of planning out the budget, but the event was successful in that. And that was really the the catalyst for a lot of other, there was a lot of referrals going on. So Southern Nevada referred us to somebody in Washoe County, which is in Northern Nevada. And we were able to do some work for them. And then they referred us to somebody in Wyoming and we were able to do some work for them. And so the first couple years was growing amount of work in Southern Nevada and then some referrals. Gotcha. What did you look like? Did you look like a, a business leader? Did you look like a teenager? I kind of ebbed and flowed. My hair was spiky. I think that that kind of gave it away on the on the teenage side. But, you know, I was able to put on a suit uh, when necessary. And, uh, you know, a teenager talking to you about how to reach teenagers more effectively, it, it works. And so I was always trying to balance the, I don't want to lose my teenageness because that's kind of the credibility that I'm getting with a lot of folks. But I also need to make them feel comfortable enough to give me a contract. And so I was trying to be both things at the same time. Wow. That, that's pretty sophisticated thinking. I mean, a passion economy thinking, like you're both thinking, who am I authentically? But then how do I pay attention to the audience so that I'm presenting my authentic self in a way that they can see the value in what I have to offer? Yeah. And so, you know, this notion of kind of knowing how to present myself as both a credible teenager and a responsible adult. Right. It's a form of code switching, I guess. It definitely is. And and do you think also being an immigrant kid helped with that, that you had to sort of learn and translate for your parents American culture? Yeah, you know, now you're talking about, you know, the intersectionality of being migrant, <laughs> being gay, just being a teenager. And being from a lower income family with ambitions to be higher income. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and all all of these things, you know, I often felt like I was in the middle of an intersection and trying to decide, well, which road am I going to go on today? Because I could be so many things and I could be seen as so many things. And I'm physically, I'm white. I'm a white Latino. And so that further, you know, gave kind of added questions into like, do I embody the, the Latino identity? Do I embody a, an American Caucasian identity? And what do those things mean? And on top of everything else. So you yourself in your personal life are sort of studying and playing with how, how behavior and can be an actual expression of your authentic self, how you can shift that behavior to hide your authentic self. And then you're also selling a service of communicating how other teens are doing that. So now let's talk about your business now. So it, it how, how does it go from okay. you're a teenager who clearly is up to something smart how did it become this bigger, you know, it's now a, a big business. Yeah, yeah. So today, yeah, today we have, you know, we have 180 employees, we have six offices, and we do work uh, for about 20 different states and the federal government. And and there's a few big kind of milestones that led to where we are today. And so the very first one was in college. It was my second year. And we uh, submitted a proposal to the Virginia Foundation for Healthy Youth. This was the first time that I essentially submitted a blind proposal. All of our other work had been through referrals. 
but it was big. It was a half a million dollar per year contract for a few years. So it was a you know it was a couple million dollars uh, what it was worth. And it was for street marketing for a youth anti-tobacco campaign. And so, you know, we said, hey, this is exactly what we're doing. You know, it's not quite how we describe what we're doing, but it's exactly what, what we're doing. So we submit this proposal. And now, you know, the foundation and the folks that are there were, were there back then. And they, they told me a lot about what was going on at this time. And, yeah, you know, big agencies were competing for this work. And they looked at our proposal and said, it's totally different from all those others. We actually understand young people. We understand what's cool, what's not cool, how to reach the right people. But they sat around and they said, you know, this kid is probably in a dorm room writing this proposal. And they were correct. Um, And they said, let's take this big risk. Let's hire rescue and see how it goes. And that was the first big milestone. It led to, you know, the opening of our office in Rhode Island, which is where I was in college, a bunch of employees that had to be hired in Virginia. And it really triggered the beginning of a lot of our services. So Virginia was the first place that we did a full research project. It's the first place that we made our first commercial. It's the first place that we've done a lot of the things that that today we do for many clients. And so one of the things that's growing a lot is research. But what I realize is that a lot of the public health researchers are not taking our research seriously because it just looks like, you know, we're just talking to a bunch of teens about what kind of music they like and we're not really doing real public health science. And so when I finished my undergrad, my goal was, well, how can we make our research more sophisticated, more professional, and move it out of market research, which the kind of scientific community doesn't pay as much attention to, and actually move it into more of the kind of academic, government, public health type research that shapes policy, shapes a lot of these campaigns. And so my first challenge was, well, I need to educate myself in this area because it is not anything I've ever studied. And experimental psychology was what caught my attention because it's literally psychology, but from a research perspective. So how do you, you know, why do people do the things that they do? How can you motivate them to change? Uh, it's a lot about experimentation and things like that. So it was exactly what it, what I thought I needed. And um, it took me a couple years actually to get into the program at UCSD, but I finally was able to get in and, and was able to get my master's and it really changed my world from a research perspective. So now, you know, I'm by far not the best researcher at the company, but I understand enough to really push our research team into the right direction so that we are competing at the level that, that we need to be competing and able to put, you know, we're putting theories out there. There's We're publishing papers in academic journals, which is something that marketing agencies simply don't do. But we do it because we do really see ourselves as trying to shape the way that health communications happens. I want to jump in here because this is a really pivotal moment. What Jeff is doing is actually really special. A lot of marketing agencies don't do this. He's not trying to change people's values. He's trying to change their behavior by appealing to the values they have and won't change. This is something he kind of stumbled into as a teenager. Those appeals to teens not to smoke, unhealthy, but because they were against animal cruelty, that was actually fairly groundbreaking. And with age and experience and getting that master's degree, this is something he got really good at. Behavior is just a manifestation of one's values, right? And so we can change any behavior. We just have to understand, well, what is the value that was driving this behavior? So it might be a value of rebellion. And how can you directly contradict that to that person in a way that is authentic and meaningful to them? So you don't want to tell them, you know, don't smoke because it's unhealthy. You want to tell them, hey, here's why actually not smoking is more rebellious than smoking. 
Right. And you have to find a way to do that. So it's like, you know, the question we, we often encourage people to think about is how would a person within this culture with the same, you know, experiences and desires and values, et cetera, how would they stand up against whatever behavior you're talking about? And, you know, we've been talking about smoking, but we do the same thing with using opioids or with nutrition or physical activity. It's the same question. It's for the people who don't do this or who do do this that we want to change. How would one of them change? And it often looks very different than the way health, public health people think people change. Public health, you know, there's this sense within public health that people, when people decide to be healthy, they're doing it because they want to be healthy. <laughs> and, and that's not true. Even amongst healthy people, many of them engage in healthy behaviors for reasons that have nothing to do with health. One of the most interesting ones is how we convinced hipsters to stop smoking. You know, that campaign in California that's been uh, published a couple times now, it's called Commune, and it focuses on showing the hipster community how the tobacco industry stands against their values. Now, in this case, it wasn't so much about the manipulation because it's actually very hard to convince a hipster that they've been manipulated because they kind of find all sorts of ways to, to talk themselves out of that. But it was very much focused on the industrial practices of the tobacco industry and how those go against them. So everything from deforestation that occurs in third world countries in order to dry tobacco leaves to the world hunger that is contributed to by the tobacco industry buying off governments that then forces their people to grow tobacco instead of growing food. Like all of these nuanced global issues about the tobacco industry is what ultimately led hipsters to decide, wow, this is a conspiracy that I can't be a part of. And we were able to show that the campaign caused about a 20% reduction in hipster smoking in San Diego. Wow, that's awesome. That is funny how hipsters, they fiercely hold on to their independence. Each of them happened to choose that bowler hat all on their own. As you get older, you know, it's one thing to be 17 and know how to target 17-year-olds. You're now a very, very old man. 35. Yeah. <laughs> so 17-year-olds today are, are pretty remote. Is that a challenge? It's a good question because this, this happens a lot with kind of, quote unquote, youth marketing agencies is that it's like, do you know what you're doing because you know what's cool and trendy at the moment? Or do you know what you're doing because you know how and why things are cool and trendy? And that became our obsession very early on, that this wasn't about just knowing what's cool in the moment. We needed to know how is it that things become cool? What is it that makes them cool? And what we ended up doing was developing a lot of our own theories, models about how do we understand what is important to somebody, what drives their behaviors, and then how we can create messages that change them. And so we've been able to apply those early insights into what was cool for teens, you know, in the early 2000s to now understand all sorts of populations. After the break, Jeff grows up and he has to figure out how do you market toward teenagers after you've reached the ripe old age of your early 30s? That's coming up. Jeff was able to carve out a unique space, a niche, you might say, perfectly suited to his skills and insight. His company grew, and some interesting opportunities came his way. The FDA, you know, announces that it's going to be doing youth campaigns, and they release a couple opportunities. We, you know, took the risk and said, okay, let's compete for this thing. They had released these six different populations they wanted to do campaigns for, and we competed for four of those, for Black, Hispanic, Asian, and for LGBT. 
And I remember being, I had just landed on a plane. I was literally on, you know, getting on one of those air trans. And I look at my emails and I get this cryptic email from the federal government. And it just, it's like three lines. And it says, you know, a decision has been made on the, you know, so-and-so contract. The following contracts have been awarded to rescue agency. And it listed all the contracts that all the populations we had submitted a proposal for. And I read it and read it over again. You know, there wasn't one word of congratulations or <laughs> here's what happens next or anything. It was like a notice. It was um, all the uh, <laughs> romance of an IRS audit letter. Pretty much, pretty much. But that thing was telling me that we just got a $152 million contract. <laughs> So I just, I couldn't believe it. So I call some of the team and I'm like, look, I just forwarded you an email. I think this means we won. Um, what do we do now? And it was, you know, it was a huge deal because we were going to need to triple in size pretty quickly. And we we're going to need to navigate, you know, how this would have been our very first national campaign, national campaigns, because uh, it was multiple campaigns they wanted us to make. And... It was a huge learning curve. You know, the folks at the FDA helped us learn a lot. We hired a CEO and hired on a, a lot of team members who helped shape and create these two campaigns that, that eventually launched. And that kind of leads us to now who we are today. Today, Jeffrey's company runs campaigns all across the country. They work on campaigns warning of the risks of opioids, youth anti-smoking campaigns, e-cigarette campaigns, and these are highly targeted marketing efforts. For instance, Rescue found that country teens, meaning white teens who live in rural areas, are more likely to use smokeless tobacco products, you know, dip. And they developed a whole campaign targeting this very specific group, appealing to their values to show them that there's nothing culturally country about dip. It all goes to show Jeff has learned some key passion economy lessons over the years and wasn't afraid to implement them. And it's helping him grow and grow smart. One thing he does, he says yes only to the projects that his skills are most suited for. He prices competitively, but he's not afraid to say, you're going to have to pay more for my unique set of skills. And the reason he can do that is because of his unique perspective, the perspective that came from this person with his particular childhood, with his experience as a young gay man, a son of immigrants, his interest in business and curiosity about why some things are cool, his insight into social groups. He took all of that and built a business, a big business, around himself, around his unique sensibility. You know, we're happy to grow uh, as long as the growth is the right way. The more you spread yourself out, the less you're going to be an expert in anything. So we're trying to find the right kind of opportunities to apply our expertise and not sway too far from it. You know, one of the most important things about growing this kind of company is knowing when to say no to an opportunity. And there's plenty of, you know, requests for proposals or people that have come knocking on the door that we've said, no, you know, it's just not the right fit. It's not going to be the kind of work that we're going to be proud of in the end or aligns with what we do. It's going to distract from the kind of work we do want to be doing. And, and that's been just as important as finding the right work. 
Today, we're continuing to work with more government agencies. We're starting to work more with criminal justice and with, you know, district attorneys and things like that, um, as well as hospital systems and healthcare. So we're definitely looking to expand more within those spaces. And we're also looking at, you know, new spaces like digital health, for example. There's all these new companies that are creating products to solve health issues, but they don't actually know how to convince people to use them. And it's like that, well, that's where our expertise comes in. And so we're looking to branch out into more of these areas where it may not be a government contract, it might actually be a contract with another for-profit company, but the ultimate goal is to improve health and is to do that by changing someone's behaviors. And that's what we do. And today, you know, when a state puts out a contract and says that they want to create a youth tobacco prevention campaign, we're able to come in and say, hey, we've done this 40 times and we know exactly what works and what doesn't work. And, and we're able to compete at a level that no advertising agency is able to compete on because we, we really developed that expertise. At first, for probably the first five, six years, because we were a small company and we didn't have as much experience and all of that, I thought that what I needed to do was price us cheap in order to get people to give us their, their contracts. And we actually struggled a lot as a company because we were trying to be as cheap as possible. And so that made those first years a big struggle. And what I realized is that it's not about being the cheapest. It's about being the best. And then once you can really articulate why you're the best and why you have that extra value, you don't need to undercut, undervalue what you're doing because when you're undervaluing your work, um, then you're kind of telling them, you know, your work isn't worth it. So today, you know, we are still a bit cheaper than, you know, big advertising agencies, but we're not just trying to compete on price. We're trying to compete by showing them that we know how to do it better than anyone else does. Jeffrey Jordan is really like a passion economy wunderkind. One of the funny things about growing up LGBT and kind of having to be this chameleon is that, you know, 10 years later, you have the advent of Drag Race and RuPaul and all of that. And one of her famous quotes is that you're born naked and the rest is drag. And it's so funny that that is the number one lesson that a marketer of anything needs to learn is that everything humans do is imaginary. It all exists within our minds. The way you dress, what that means, the car that you drive, what that means, all of that is just is just imaginary. And so as soon as you realize that and as soon as you realize that people behave because of norms and because of, you know, what someone else told them it means and all of that, you become, you know, the ultimate marketer. And that's what a lot of times is missing within public health and what I think we've really brought to public health. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson. This episode was produced by our fabulous intern, Hana Tatsutani, with help from Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 